is episode 23 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in today's episode, we will be talking about Keep or Cull. And in a change to the advertised programming, we will be <laughs> discussing um, two William Maxwell novels, They Came Like Swallows and Time Will Darken It. Um, the reasons why we have changed will come up later. <laughs> but, but, but first of all, Rachel, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Simon. Enjoying my summer holiday. Of course, yes. Yeah, doing lots of relaxing, reading, just enjoying myself, really. And what are you reading? Um, well, I've been on a roll this last week. Um, I've, I bought myself a load of books for the summer and then months ago and then promptly didn't read them. So I've just got through two books that are new books in hardback, which <gasps> is completely unlike me. I know, shocker. Um, so one of them was called The Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry. I don't know if you've seen that anywhere. Yes, I think I've got a copy of it on my coffee table, actually. <laughs> but <laughs> I think I got sent a, re- I think I got sent a review book. Maybe not. But otherwise, I, I definitely saw you, um, saying how pretty it was somewhere. I yeah, think. it is very pretty. Um, and The Ballroom by Anna Hope, because I really liked her first book. Um, so I bought that one as well. So I've read both of them this past week. Um, they were both good, though. The Essex Serpent was a bit of a disappointment. To be honest, oh, really? Why, why so? Well, it just kind of it was there was too much going on, and so none of the central the central plot just sort of fell apart a bit, and it got lost amidst this other stuff that wasn't really entirely necessary. I felt. Oh, same. But, but, it, but it's pretty and very pretty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am also uncharacteristically um, about to read some no- modern novels. I haven't actually read them yet, but um. Two authors I like, Eva Rice, as discussed in the last podcast, Um, and Owen Ivy. I don't know how to pronounce her name. She wrote The Snow Child. Um, Oh, yes. Yes, and she's just written a book called, it's here, um, The Bright Edge of the World. No, To to the Bright Edge of the World, um, which has a map on the cover, so that'll be exciting. Although I do hate maps, so I'm hoping that's not going to become a big deal. <laughs> um, and Eva Rice has written one called Letters to Someone. I can't remember, but I will know by the time I've written the title in the notes below this. <laughs> um, that my housemate Kirsty immediately borrowed because she also loves Eva Rice. <laughs> so. Well, you know, I've never read anything by either of these people, so I'm going to have to get looking these things up. Oh, yeah. This, oh, the Snow Child is lovely. It's all about, um, well, it's, a fa- it's that sort of fairy tale about a couple. Who can't have a child oh, and make one out of snow? Yeah, yeah and she's set. It. about it. Yeah, she sets it in modern day Alaska. In fact, this one's also in Alaska. So mm. maybe that's. Is she, is she from Alaska? She is indeed. Yes. Oh. Um, I love Alaska. I have a very fanciful idea of it in my head. <laughs> well, this book is. Well, the snow child is so um, sweet and beautiful about the description that you that that fantasy may continue. <laughs> okay, I'll check it out. But if we were a very up-to-date modern podcast about books, which we're not, we would talk about the book along list that came out today. Did it indeed? Well, (laughs) is there anything on there that you've actually read? No, of course not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I'd only heard of two of the authors. And now I can't remember who they were. I can look it up now. You can hear clicking. That's me looking it up. And of course, by the time this actually goes live, it'll be old news. But for us now, we're, we're really we hot, hot button topic. Right, here we go. Oh, Joe Curtsy, he's always on it. Yes, I've read one book by him. Yeah, um, me too, that I had to read for university. 
Oh, I had to read it from the university as well. Yeah. <laughs> Foe. I can't remember which one it was. Yes, that was it. To do, to do with Robinson Crusoe, right? Yes, um, which um, I, re- hmm. I had to discuss without having actually read Robinson Crusoe, which, you know, maybe it hindered the Stop. amount I was supposed to know about the two. Well, I actually just want a list, and I can't seem to... Everyone's talking about it, but no one's actually giving Don't me a give list. give us any discourse. Just give us facts. Right. Oh, here we go. Maybe if I actually went on the website, that would be useful, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. No. Never heard of them. No. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> and the thing is, I haven't even seen any of these in bookshops. Well, someone was telling me yesterday that half of them aren't even published yet. Well, that's ridiculous. This is absurd. <laughs> so there we go. We've Teal Books has given the final word on the Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> Prize. Uh, if something wins, I imagine my book group will do it. I mean, if something wins, of course something's going to win, Simon. They would just be like, no, we decided not to award it to any of them. They're all rubbish. <laughs> Turns out no one writes good books anymore. I'm sure that's not true. Well, it isn't true. Um, well, there you go. We've covered that fairly well, I think. Um, what, what, are you, what are you reading next? Um, well, actually, last night I started reading um, Stoner, which I know everyone's been talking about for years. Um, and I realised I borrowed it from my friend about two years ago and probably should read it and give it back to her. So um, I started it, and it's, well, it's lovely so far. I mean, sad, but lovely. Ah, so, yes, I got a copy back when everyone was talking about it, <laughs> how many years ago that was, and I've yet to start it. I think you'd really enjoy it. Though it is quite depressing, but, like, depressing in a in a kind of nice way, if you know what I mean. Hmm. Mm. Yes, I, I do, that does sound like something I would enjoy, actually. Yeah. I, my chief recollection is that Persephone um, tweeted or Facebooked or something about how their books were actually better than Stoner. <laughs> and it's like, well, they probably are, but, but, I'll, still, <laughs> but I'll still read Stoner at some point. Um, who wrote it? John something. John Williams. John Williams. What a what a bland name. Says I called Simon Thomas. <laughs> but, <you know>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, blandness and averageness is what the book's all about, really, you know, isn't it? Celebrating well, mediocrity, which, you know, is <laughs> something that we can all get behind, I think. <laughs> yes, another tagline that we should use. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am currently reading a book by someone with an almost equally bland name, John Moore. Oh. Um, it's called Brenton Village. It's one of the Slightly Fox editions. It's a sequel okay. to a book I've not read um, <laughs> <laughs> called, um, I think, Elmsbury or Elmbury. Um so they're both memoirs of growing up in the countryside, and Elmbury is a fictionalised version of Tewkesbury um, in Gloucestershire. Mm. Which There's was, an abbey, right? There is an abbey indeed, um, yeah. he, and it, I lived. I grew up about five miles away from Tewkesbury. Oh. Um, and Brenton Village, he claims as a synthesis of villages. I'm, I think it might be Breeden, which I grew up about three miles away from, so um, it's one of the places where I'm, I'm fooling myself that I know all the places he's talking about. Um, it'll t- probably turn out he was writing about somewhere com- the other side of Tewkesbury, completely far away from me. But um, at the moment, I keep thinking, "Oh yes, Brentsham Hill. I bet that's Breeden Hill, etc., etc." <laughs> but but quite, quite apart from that, it is very enjoyable, <laughs> um, even if one does not know where he's talking about. No, but you know, I love books like that though, where you can kind of think, "Oh, that's I know where that is," and it makes it much more exciting. Yeah, um, he, he writes quite a lot about cricket and darts as well, which is. Oh. Interesting. Obviously close to my heart. So. Being such a sporting man. <laughs> yes, I, he, he does talk about having to play for the village cricket team and it takes me back to the one time I played for the village cricket team and I, as far as I can recall I just made it so that 
I would never have to hit the ball because we just did all, all our runs in even numbers. So I was always at the side that was not being bowled out. <laughs> That's clever. I feel at some point I must have been bowled out, or maybe the game just ended. I don't know. <laughs> I've never known the rules of cricket, and I didn't know them then. So. I'm I'm pretty hot on my cricket. I come from a cricketing family. Oh right. And yeah, I quite enjoy a game of cricket, I have to say, but it does. Sometimes they just go on too long. Well, you may like love this one all the more. Then I recommend it. Well, I'll have to check it out. Lovely. Yeah. Um. Let's go into our first topic. Why not? Why not? Um, which I think might have been on our shortlist for a while, but was prompted by a recommendation from Tina on um, last episode's comments on my blog. So thank you, Tina. Um, and also, after we agreed that we were going to do it, um, Teresa from Self Love wrote a book, uh, wrote a um, blog post at Book Riot all about how to trim your TBR pile, um, which we will probably turn to later. But first of all, Rachel. Mm. Would you be able to estimate for me approx how many books you think you own? Well, I mean, well over a thousand, I should think. How about, well, you own must own thousands. Well, yes, I don't need to estimate because I have more catalogs and library things. So <laughs> I've got about 2,800. Goodness. Um, many of which are in my parents' house. Hi, Mum. Hi, Dad. Sorry. Has, yeah, <laughs> thanks, parents, also, for storing most of my books still. Um, how should we start this? What, what what are your main what are your thoughts when you hear the words culling books? You know, I'm very much behind this. You know, I a, a few years ago, if someone had said to me, "You need to get rid of, of some of your books," it, I would have you know fallen down dead on the floor. <laughs> now, increasingly, because I move so much, I've had to learn to become less emotionally attached to them. And whatever I, whenever I think about. Um, moving and having to pack up boxes and then carry the boxes um i just think do i want to keep this enough to do that do i want to carry it down like <laughs> stairs do i want to pack it in a box do i want to put it in a in a lorry do i want to have to take it out take it back upstairs and unpack it again uh, you know do i do i love it that much and um that's made it much easier for me to get rid of books and also i think Certainly when you've got books where you think, do you know what, if I give it away, I can pretty easily get hold of it again in the future if I if I realise that, you know, I do need it for something. Um, so I think I'm I'm actually really fine with culling now and I actively encourage people to do so. Ooh. I think it's really important because personally for me, a library should be full of books that you love and will read again. And if you've got stuff that you're just keeping for the sake of it or because you spent a lot of money on it or because it's a nice addition or whatever, I think, you know, is it adding to your life? Would you keep an ornament that you never looked at or used? No. So why keep a book? Do you know what I mean? So profound. Yeah. So, so do you find this um, when you're when you're buying books or looking at books to buy, does, you, does it make you more or less likely to buy them? Because I guess it could go one of two ways. You could either think, I may as well buy it because if I don't want it, I'll just get rid of it. Or oh, I probably shouldn't spend this money because I might get rid of it before I've even read it. Um, that's an interesting question. I do kind of go through a thought process now when I buy books because I used to buy quite indiscriminately because I was... I used to think, oh, well, you know, I, I want to find it again. But actually, you know, the amount of times I go to, to charity shops and secondhand bookshops and see the same titles cropping up, cropping mm -hmm. up again, again you think, well, do you know what? It's, you know, I really don't have to buy it right now. Um, I do, if I find something that's interesting or that 
you know, I think it's a nice, I particularly like to buy art books and history books and things because often, you know, even if I do want to buy them used online or something, they're still quite expensive. So if I come across them in a secondhand bookshop, I normally pick them up. But um, the only time, no, secondhand books I don't really think about because they're so cheap, I just buy them anyway. But um, new books, I very rarely buy because I do think if I don't like this, that's £15 that I've thrown away. Yeah, very good point. Yes. <laughs> um, so I was a bit, when I bought the ones I just mentioned, the Borum and the Essex Serpent, I bought them because I was pretty 90% certain that I would really like them and want to keep them. Um, and even though I didn't love the Essex Serpent, I would still keep it because it's got lots of interesting things in it that I'd like to look at again. But, um, yeah, I think because I do tend to get rid of things, I think I don't tend to buy new books for that reason. I would rather get it from the library than buy it because if I don't like it, I know I'll give it away. And then I would feel that I'd wasted my money. Ah, fair enough. Yes. Um, I am generally bad at culling, I think it's fair to say. Um, I'm generally not the worst person I know, and I have already warned my housemate, Kirsty, that I'm going to name and shame her as being (laughs) absolutely terrible at it. My favourite case in point is that there is a book that she hates, that her dog is eating the cover of, and that she has two copies of, and she cannot get rid of it. Sorry, Kirsty. I need to come round and speak to Kirsty. <laughs> um, I think she's quite intractable when it comes to to her books, but um, perhaps I mean, maybe maybe a stern word from you will make a greater difference than a stern word from me, which, frankly, has been um, not particularly forceful or indeed stern. No, I can't Kirsty. imagine you ever speaking to anyone in a stern manner, Simon. <laughs> Certainly not about getting rid of books. No. <laughs> um, I so yes, I'm not that bad. I will get rid of books, and I have got rid of probably several hundred over the years um but in general partly i think because i've never quite got to that crux of having to move all of my books um i just keep buying them keep massing them (laughs) um but i do have a date on the dead on the horizon when it's about two and a half years when my dad uh, retires as a vicar and they have to leave the vicarage um that is when i will have to find somewhere for all of my books it's like you know d-day it's looming it is looming. Um, and, yeah, so, uh, f- when have I got rid of books? So, Kate, well, basically, when I go home, sometimes I will go through everything there, and I will pick things out. And there's one time I got rid of about 50, I think, <laughs> going through, and it felt very painful. And then I realised that of those 50, probably about 40 of them were duplicates. <laughs> <laughs> um and yes, the others were just review books that I'd just put on the shelf without thinking of and had no intention ever of reading. So I've never really made the difficult decisions with books. That definitely the benefit of the doubt has been to keep them. Do you do you tend to weed on mass or do you just as you go along? No, I do it quite regularly actually, because um I every time I go back to my parents' house, my parents are in the process of basically knocking down half the house and rebuilding it. So um every time I go home they're like, Well, you know, you need to sort that room out because it's gonna be gone soon. I'm like, oh. okay, Yeah. Um <laughs> I, I will. So I was just home for the last uh, for the last couple of days and I well, this is kind of embarrassing. I've I've found like ten books I could get rid of and I have like ruthlessly cold already. So the ones that I have there I definitely want to keep. Um, and I was like, do you know what? I'll just go over them one more time and see if I can pick something else out. Because I find every time I go back to it, you know, if I've left it a month or two, a book that before I was kind of on the fence about getting rid of, I'll look at it again and think, well, it's been two months. You haven't thought about it and you haven't read it. So you probably can't get it. <laughs> um, so I made a pile of about 20. And then I was sort of putting them in a bag to take to the charity shop. And then gradually about half of them ended up going back to the shelf where I thought, <laughs> you know what? I might need that. 
Um, what's bad about becoming a teacher is that I can justify keeping a lot of books just in case the kids need it or um, <laughs> I need to refer to it for something. Um, but so no, every time I go home, I normally manage to weed out another couple that I can get rid of. Um, and that process is going to have to happen soon because I'm going to have to pack them up and I can't bear the thought of it. Um, and then at my flat, I've only got one book bookcase and my flatmate is Madness. Um, <laughs> with me about, you know, one in, one out. So um, I, I do regularly get rid of books here as well. Um, books I haven't read for ages or books that I've bought because I've decided I want to learn about quantum physics or um, archaeology and then realise that I don't understand what <laughs> and I'm never going to read them or ever going to become a quantum physicist. So um, <laughs> yeah, those, I'm glad you've made peace with that now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've just accepted it. It's fine. So <laughs> I get rid of those sorts of things that I buy on a whim um, and also books that I've bought from the charity shop and then think, oh, actually, I'm not going to read this. I don't have time and it's taking up too much space. So I just get rid because, you know, it's a pound. It's no big deal. And you just give it back to the charity shop. So you're doing the world of service. That's yes, it's true. When I get rid of them, they when I say get rid of or Carl, I obviously mean take them to a charity shop yeah, because that's what always happens with them. And I think you know, it's I think it is easier if you do it as you go along. I think sitting down and being like, right, you've got to get rid of a hundred books, that becomes a really difficult task. Um, whereas if you do it, you know, now and again, you're getting rid of one book a week or one book, a couple of books a month or whatever, it feels a lot more manageable. And actually, you that way, you kind of keep a a shelf of books or shelves of books that are current and relevant to what you're interested in and that you're actually going to refer to. I don't see the point in having a library of books of stuff that most of which you've never read, most of which you're never going to read or books that you've got for, you know, people gave up. Well, something that really bothers me is I've got friends who say, oh, but I can't give this away because someone gave it to me as a gift. I'm like, right, okay, but they gave it to you a gift 10 years ago and you never read it. So what's the point? It's interesting you should say that because that is one of the criteria that Therese mentions in her article. Um, so she gives, mm. let me find, find it. Um, there's a list of reasons what the what things that um, made her want to keep books that were on her TBR pile. Um, in fact, the first one is gifts. Um, others are things she's got recently, special editions, um, books I'm going to want to, t- to take notes in. What does that mean? Oh, yeah. So that she can write in them. Oh, I, I see. Um, books that she won't read quickly. Um, so those are the five or six whatever it was uh, criteria she gives and I think I agree with her that with gifts that um, in fact I, there's one case two people gave me The Uncommon Reader by Alan Bennett um, and I love that book I, 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 but I have kept both editions because I, I can't get rid of either of them because they're both presents from people <laughs> I don't have a problem with that at all <laughs> I think you know what I, I, if I've read it and I haven't massively enjoyed it I give it away I've read the gift fine job done um, or if someone gave me a book that I don't, I'm just not interested in, I'm never going to read it, then I would rather somebody else get value from it than it sit on my shelf because I feel a bit bad about not having read it. It's like, you know, at Christmas from um, students at school, sometimes you get, you know, jewellery that isn't really your cup of tea or something like that. And I think, well, I could keep it because I feel bad. But then, you know, what's the point? I'm not wearing it. I'd rather somebody else have it and enjoy it. So ruthless. Well, you have to be, especially when you live in a small space and you can't keep everything. I mean, if I had an enormous house with bookshelves in every room, then I probably would never cull anything because I wouldn't need to. But space has forced me to become quite ruthless. And now I actually feel 
quite stressed when I know I've got too much of stuff and I can't sort of get to things. That really bothers me. So then I just start culling. I do it all the time, like once a month. I just get rid of stuff and I love it. <laughs> yeah. This is the final episode of Teal Books. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you more likely to cull a book you have read or one you haven't read, do you think? Oh, um, well... No, well, I have books I have read. I I don't have a problem with getting rid of if I know I'm never going to read them again. Um, books I haven't read, I do struggle more with because I think, well, there must have been a reason why I bought this, and I don't know if it's going to be good or not. And such and such a person said it's really good, but um, so I have a kind of rule on the unread things. If basically I've bought something, even if I know it's good, if I bought it like five years ago and still haven't read it, I'll give it away. See, I think I, so I'm definitely with you that I'm more likely to, to get rid of a book if I've read it. Um, cause by then I know all about it. I know whether or not I like it and yeah. whether or not I can say. Um, but I, yeah, so I'm more likely to keep unread books. So I feel like the longer they've been there, the more likely I am to keep them. Cause I think, well, it's been there for seven years now. What's the point <laughs> of keeping it for seven years and then get, getting rid of it? I've got to keep it longer now. <laughs> if that makes any sense. No, that does make sense. It does make sense. You feel like you've, you've had it for a long time and you must have kept it for a reason. Hmm. And I think actually sometimes it is lovely when you go to your shelf and you find something you've had for 10 years and then you pick it up and read it and you're like, Oh, this is amazing. Um, you know, I'm so glad I had this. I love that. I love it when that happens. When you're like, yes, you would, or we talked about it before, I think, where it's like, you've just been waiting your time and now yeah. it's your time. And, you know, sometimes that does happen. And there are books that I know that I have got that I've had for 10 years and not read. And I know it's because it hasn't been the right time for me to read them yet. And I will get to it eventually. Those books I won't get rid of. But stuff I've bought, um, like I used to buy Viragos, for example, indiscriminately. Because mm. I thought, oh, well, it's a Virago, so it would be good. And actually, you know, as time went on and I read more of them, I realised that they weren't quite as um, selective in their publishing as I thought. And just because it was a Virago didn't mean it was going to be my cup of tea. Um, and rather than having, you know, 20 books sitting around unread that were probably not really going to appeal to me massively, I just got rid of them. I mean, you can't give everything forever. <laughs> well, but I will also say that I grew up with a mother who is ruthless, much more ruthless than I am, and we have nothing in our house at all—no clutter, no books. I mean, this is also why I think I became quite, um, you know, obsessive about buying books all the time when I was younger, because I grew up in a house with no books, so I, I never had anything. If I ran out of library books, I had nothing to read. So that's that Rachel, kind of, I know. I mean, it's like trauma. Um, yes, so, I feel like you've been damaged <laughs> in many ways um, you know, to, in her defence my mum did take me to the library like three times a week to be, <laughs> um, she just doesn't like stuff like she's a very minimalist person oh, like, there's no point you buying and to be fair she did say there's no point me buying you books because you read them in like a day and then you're finished with them and I was like yeah fair enough so and the library was very good yes but I agree I oh, sorry. Of, of wanting stuff around me I think that's lessened as I've got older. See, I grew up in um, a house that is the opposite of minimalist. <laughs> that um, I don't want to use the word cluttered because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, mum, sorry, dad. Um, but, but yes, basically every surface is always covered with things and they're deliberate things and they're not just sort of dumped there, but um, certainly not a minimalist life. And every, every room had books in. Um, oddly, my parents were still very pro using the library and I don't they don't seem to buy books very often so that presumably they also went through a phase in their 20s and 30s um, of buying or early 30s of buying lots of books and then just stopped because <laughs> they'll, they'll get books occasionally but certainly 
the amount of books in the house do not reflect the amount of times books come into the house. Although, having said that, there are fewer now since my parents bought a house to retire to and my dad banished all of the fiction to that house. <laughs> <laughs> so mine is all still there. So mum uses my li- my room as a library. But um, he decided that all the fiction could go. It was very, very dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, that's amazing that you could do that and still have books, like loads of books. Well, true, yes. Um and I think, um, yes, I similarly, because I used the library a lot more as a child than I bought, than I had books bought for me or bought them myself with pocket money or anything, I'm still in that phase of just can't, can't quite get my head around the fact that I can go and buy a book and it's mine and it costs like two pounds and I get to keep that book forever. Yeah. So my hoarding stage is certainly still somewhat in, in process. <laughs> um, I think, you know, what doesn't help as well is, you know, books are so cheap. Um, in this country particularly, I remember when I moved to America and I realized how expensive it was to buy books. Um, and here it's so cheap. Like in America, it's $15 for, for a paperback. And mm. for that kind of money, you feel like, Oh, I can't justify this. But here you can walk into so many Oxfam bookshops, things like that. And you can buy, you know, six books for 10 pounds. And you think, well, what's, what's the harm? I should point out that last time I went to America, I came back with 25 books in my bag, but they were all, all <laughs> second-hand ones. And yes, I had to throw my underwear while I was there so I could fit the books in the bag. <laughs> uh, I should have some shame at some point. Um, I should also just mention that Kirsty has just messaged me <laughs> saying, hashtag team keep. So there you go. <laughs> she knows because she knows we're recording this episode. Um, is there anything about Keyboard Curl that you'd like to, uh, to quiz me on, Rachel? <laughs> Well, Simon, you know, what I think is, what goes through your head when when you're struggling between a book to keep it or to get rid of it? What what makes you think, no, I definitely need to keep this? Um, I think I'm very likely to keep it if I have lots of books by that author. Mm-hmm. Perhaps even if I've not particularly enjoyed it. If if So say, like, there's a few Muriel Spark books that I don't, I haven't really enjoyed. I didn't particularly like The Takeover or the, um, the, some others. But because I've got all of Muriel Spark books... I still keep the ones I've read and don't particularly like. So that's one thing. So you feel the need to have a complete collection? Yes, or even if not complete, um, if I've got, even if I've just got a lot, I think, well, maybe one day I will have all of the books by this author, and it, I'll be sad that I'll have got rid of some of them along the way. <laughs> but if you don't like them, why do you need, well, this is what I'm interested in, in working out. So the, you're not going to read it again, but you but you just want to have a complete set, is it? Because, so you anticipate somebody else wanting to use them, or...? I think it's partly because I I think of books as sort of separate from whether or not I want to read them. They're there as objects and as a collection and as a library. And right. I'm well aware that I'm never going to read The Takeover again and that I wouldn't lend it to anyone because it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I like the idea that I've got, as part of my library, all of Miro Spark books. Um, yeah. I think, it's, yes, it's, it's, it's the whole thing I tell people about how I, I, buy far more, I buy books at a far faster rate than I read them, partly because I love buying books i love looking for them and hunting we've got this before yeah. haven't we yeah yeah um, i love that too and we're the same on that and i think i just I, th- I think i just extend that to keeping books as well i love having books around me and i love i also love being able to just look at them and have an opinion about them and so and i can't, obviously don't have that with the books i haven't read yet so i keep them there as sort of like a history of books i have read in the past not necessarily just the best books i've read in the past no, I really like that. And I think there is a lot in that, that idea of your library being, um, it is, it's a, it's a way of commemorating the person that you've been over time, isn't it? 
Yeah. Um, and the things that have formed you. And I do think sometimes I've I've lost a bit of that in getting rid of books. But, you know, at the same time, I do also believe that libraries should be living things and they should represent your current interests um, as much as possible. And I think when you do... Um, so I've got authors, like you say, the books that I love and then books that I don't like. And I really struggle with that. I should keep this because... You know, I, I kind of like I had Margaret, all of Margaret Atwood's books. And then mm. I was like, I'm never going to read these, these, um, you know, the more science fiction ones, which I know she hates them being termed as science fiction. But I'm going to say it anyway, because you know what? I'm Sorry, Margaret. Deal with it. Yeah, just deal with it, lady. <laughs> I can't remember the names of them. They've been erased from my mind. But um, I got rid of them because I thought that and also they're hardbacks and they're really big and they take up a lot of shelf space. That um, is an excellent point. Oh, yeah. Sorry to cut in. But yes, I will. The, the, one of the main things I'm thinking about when I'm getting rid of it is how big is this book because <laughs> space is a premium even even at home where it's not you know the house is much bigger than my room here but my bookcases are still finite and a chunky book whether or not I've read it is much more likely to be thrown out than a small book yeah it's difficult I think you know if space were not an issue I would probably end up keeping everything that's interesting because um Yes, because you're obviously very pro-culling, but it seems mm-hmm. to be very entirely, well, not entirely, but it seems to be very practically motivated rather than necessarily an ethos you'd, you'd say for everyone. Yeah, I think for me, it works for me because I, I feel quite stressed in cluttered spaces. Um, like having grown up in quite minimalist spaces, I don't like clutter. So everything has to have a use and a purpose that's around me. And if I've got books that don't serve a purpose, that makes me feel stressed looking at them, thinking it's taking up space um, that could be used for something else. Whereas if I had more space and could spread my books over and, and I didn't have to, because I don't like having to double stack and things like that, because I like to be able to see what my books are. Um, oh, that's a good point. I do have to... Um, double stack on all my bookcases in Somerset. Here, I actually in, in Oxford, I only double stack on one of my six bookcases. <laughs> <laughs> six bookcases. Wow! I wish for such riches. Just yes, one. I- <laughs> but as soon as I settle down into a place that's actually mine, where I intend on staying for a while, then it's gonna—they're gonna spread like a rash. Um, <laughs> so I can should, see it coming. <laughs> we should definitely have this conversation again in a few years um, yeah. when we. Well, we both, of course, own palatial houses. Yes, <laughs> our, our enormous homes in, you know, London and Oxford, the most expensive <laughs> in the UK. But, um, yeah. Because if anything, when I stop renting, I'll have less space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yes, whereas I think my ethos on, on keeping, or the amount of books I do call probably wouldn't change even if I had a huge, huge house. Um, maybe the bigger books I hadn't read would stay. But apart from that... I think probably it would be much the same as it is now. I've just, because I, because I just f- f- pile up on the floor and you know behind bookcases and just anywhere I can fit books. I'm, I'm not like oh I need to have books beautifully out on the shelves. Which I mean ideally I'd love, but it's certainly not hampering me <laughs> um, keeping everything. Essentially, I'm gonna my house will look like one of those old bookshops you find in like old market towns where yeah. you can't see any of the books because they're just falling out of the door and there's some cranky old man who'll be me <laughs> in this scenario sat in the corner being like. Don't touch my books. <laughs> <laughs> That's an image of the future. <laughs> and by future, I mean next year, frankly. A very pronounced um, southwestern accent there. <laughs> yes, that will come as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well, I think um, we are probably we're in danger of this running forever. So yeah. 
in some ways this isn't quite the, the usual dichotomy because I don't think either of us would say get rid of all your books or keep no. all of your books. But if you had to lean one way, what are you going to pick? I would go towards culling. I think it's a healthy habit. Um, and I will revel in my unhealthiness and stay <laughs> with keep. <laughs> Um, but we'd love to know your thoughts, anyone, because I think this this is a, this does get an oddly emotional topic for it book is, lovers. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah, please do put in the comments um, what your thoughts are, what your criteria are, etc. Hmm. Um, second half now, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Rachel can sense what's coming. <laughs> I'm gonna be told off. <laughs> You're gonna be told off. <laughs> Um, so we were going to do The Love Child by Edith Olivier and Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner. Rachel, did, did you get The Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner? Do you know what, Simon? It just, I couldn't find it anymore. <laughs> it wasn't my fault. So, um, <laughs> that discussion will be postponed until next podcast because Rachel's promised that she's going to take it away on holiday with her. <laughs> I shall. I will. Um, FYI, at this point, next episode will be delayed a bit because Rachel is away for three weeks. Yeah. Don't rob her house, people. (laughs) 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 I assume your housemate will still be there. Yeah, she'll be. Um, So instead, we have turned to an author that we both very much admire and enjoy, William Maxwell. And um, I've only read three of his books, so we've picked two of those. Um, Time Will Darken It and... They came like swallows. Um, I, um, I'm going to defer to William Maxwell expert Rachel oh, wow. to introduce us to both of them, if that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so They Came Like Swallows is, a, I would call it a novella. Would you? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and it's quite autobiographical. It's set in um, the Edwardian period in Illinois, which is where most of his books are sex. It's where he grew up. And it's the story of this boy and his family. And um, it's there's a, it's a very hot summer and then there's a flu epidemic. Um, so it must be 1918, mustn't it? Yeah, the flu, the summer of the oh, flu. Oh, is it the Spanish flu? Oh. Yeah, the Spanish flu. Um, and it's basically the whole novel is this very introspective view of what it's like to be a child um he's about seven or eight and it's the most wonderful depiction of the powerlessness of being a child and of not really understanding what's going on around you um and it it kind of you can tell what's going to happen at the beginning um um because you know you've got this whole the spanish flu is coming in the background and um his mum's pregnant with another child and it's you know he's thinking behind that and then gradually as time goes on you realize i'm not going to say what happens but uh, <laughs> something horrible's going to happen and it's I know, i've never cried so much at a book oh <laughs> i mean i was a mess and i was on a train it was very embarrassing hey, Rachel. <laughs> know, this seems to happen to me a lot on public transport and i'm just sobbing quietly in a corner and hoping no one says anything um so that's they came like swallows and then Time Will Darken It is quite different. It's much longer um, and it's set around the same time, actually. Um, and it's to do with uh, a man who is whose name I can't remember, which isn't useful. Austin King. Austin King. Thank you. Um, I love that you. Did you make notes or are you giggling? Um, I have my blog review open <laughs> so, because I know I need to refer to it often, I think. <laughs> um, and it's his family come to stay for the summer and it's this very overbearing um, man and his wife and their teenage daughter who takes a fancy to him 
Um, and also, what's his name again? Remind me. Austin. Austin, Austin yeah. King. Yeah. Austin. His his wife, his relationship with his wife, who's pregnant, is quite um, awkward. Um, he loves her much more than she loves him, and it's what basically the fallout of this family member coming, of these fa- this family coming. The the guy, he's um, his relative, is trying to in- get him to be part of this kind of Ponzi scheme, basically. Um, and this this teenage girl, his second cousin or third cousin or whatever it is, is kind of trying to get with him and then he's got the whole issue of his wife and it's one of those books where nothing really happens but everything happens and it's amazing yes i think that's um, a really good way of describing maxwell's work in general at least the ones i've read so i've read those two and so long uh, see you tomorrow um and it is just where nothing really happens and yet the way he describes every small moment um yes. of people reacting or thinking or or sometimes bigger things like this the ponzi scheme or or you know the 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 crux of the matter in in um the game like swallows it just feels like all of life is there and it's just filled with event um at the same time and i don't know that that mix of nothing seeming to happen and everything happen happening um it just feels really vivid because he does that and feels like you're in this small town community, which both, both of them are set in small town communities, I believe. Um, yes. I guess, and I guess they came out as always as much more focused on the family, whereas, um, time will darken it does look at the community more broadly. Mm-hmm. It just feels like, like it is living in a community where, you know, on, on a world stage that none of these things are actually that important, but to everyone there, they feel extremely important. Yeah, and I think that's something that really bothers me when people say, oh, I hate novels when nothing happens. I need plot, blah, blah. I'm like, actually, if you think about it, in all of our lives, nothing that much really happens on a day-to-day basis. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Um, and But everything happens at the same time because it's the little things that obsess you and that, you know, occupy your thoughts. And um, it's I think life is, is predominantly emotional rather than active, if you see what I mean. Um and I think much of what goes on in our lives is, is emotional rather than active. And, you know, we're not all swanning off to Peru and is setting up orphanages in India and, you know, having new jobs every five minutes. You know, it doesn't work like that. Um, and I think that William Maxwell is fantastic at capturing the essence of what life is, um, which is an endless series of nothings that end up being incredibly important to us. And, yes. Yeah. And I, um, and his his writing is so rich um and is and it's so observant and um all things you've been saying but it does mean that i have to be in the right mood for him he's definitely not someone i can just pick up any time um, no it's quite you need quite some time to sort of mull over it don't you mm, mm, it's time where you just want to sort of really soak in every paragraph and really like let it feel immersed in it um I was just, in fact, just looking at my review of um, Time Will Dark, and I discovered it took me four months to actually finish <laughs> it. <laughs> um, because I think you, can, if you're just flicking through the pages and not really taking in all his the way he uses words, um, it does feel like you're just like, oh, then nothing happened. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, the um, the deep you go, each sentence is so beautifully turned, and I think you can tell that he was an editor who looked at short stories a lot because. The editor's eye and the and the eye of someone who I have not read his short stories, but he, I know that he wrote some and that he um spent time editing people's is every word counts and every slight emotion um, counts and all that sort of thing. Yeah, he's excellent at, at describing feelings and also about 
um, noticing things and writing about the little things that are, you know, just the feel of something or the way a cloud looks or the way it feels to have rain on your skin and, you know, little things like that he captures perfectly. And you're right, every one of his sentences is so carefully crafted. Um, and his writing is like poetry. It's beautiful. It's just so beautiful. I just love it. I just want to bathe in it. <laughs> yeah, um, I just bit I noticed down in the review, there's um, Miss Ewing, his secretary at the legal firm, I think is a wonderful character. But she, there's a bit where she talks about how Austin's father, who he very much lives in the shadow of him, and he was in this firm before Austin, um, how she's saying that his father never yelled at her or never never um, lost his temper with her. Um, and Maxwell's narrative goes, goes on to explain that he often did, but she's not remembered that. And he says, um, there is always a kind of truth in those fictions which people create in order to describe something too complicated and too subtle to fit into any conventional pattern, which I think is not only a lovely way of describing it, but a really great description of what he does in his writing. Yeah. He fi- finds ways to descri- describe that that is too complicated and too subtle to fit into any conventional novelistic pattern, mm-hmm. um, just by showing us certain scenes and certain um, pieces of dialogue. Yeah. And I think, you know, she, he kind of ma- manages to bring even the smallest characters to life. And that's mm, wonderful mm. as well. I mean, sometimes you only meet people briefly in his books, but they are so well realized that you feel like you know them intimately and you recognize in them traits of people that you know yourself. Um, and that's what I love as well is he just creates this real living world. And you desperately, I, mean, I always end up desperately caring about the characters and feeling really emotional when I finish um, reading and, and wanting to know what's happened to them. And I remember getting to the end of Time Will Darken It and it's got that wonder, one of those wonderful endings where it's kind of nothing's really resolved, but you kind of know what's going to happen, but it's not confirmed. Um, but you know, deep, mm-hmm, you know the mm-hmm. characters, so you know what's going to happen. And it is that feeling of, I want to go back in five years time and find out what's going on. Or, you know, I feel like I've never really left them behind and because so real they've become to me. And that's such a talent in fiction, being able to create people who feel like they are part of you really. And I think particularly with, um, with Austin, he doesn't feel like he's a good person or a bad person. He just feels like a real person. Yeah. And that's the thing. He does create real people. There aren't any heroes or villains. You know, there's nobody's unrealistically good or unrealistically bad. These are just people. And even with his his wife, whose name I cannot remember for the moment, um, when we and I'm skipping through my review, Martha, um, Martha. So we first sort of see her through his point of view. Um, I think it's still in the third person, but that's yeah. how we, how we're seeing her. And she does start off seeming quite bad, like she's very cold, very distant. And then when the narrative turns to uh, sort of her thoughts come through, or we see a bit more from her perspective you see a much more nuanced portrait. Um, and same thing in They Came Like Swallows. The first section is from the perspective of Bunny, isn't it? Um, yeah. And we see, for example, his brother, who seems, from Bunny's perspective, um, quite mean and quite unpleasant in some ways. And then we move into Robert's perspective um, and see a much... He builds up these characters gradually from different perspectives in the way that... I mean, someone like Virginia Woolf was doing that um, years before, but um, he does it in a, without re- needing to use stream of consciousness, particularly, or you know, playing around with language. Because his sentences, whilst beautiful, aren't impressionistic or anything. They are they sort of normal. You know, what do I mean to say? <laughs> it, it, it doesn't feel like it's out of kilter with the tradition of the American novel. 
Um, but at the same time, he seems to be um, finding more ways to show people's perspective and get inside people's minds than perhaps the traditional novel would be expected to do. Yeah, and I think he's he's actually quite a unique writer because I don't think I've really come across... I mean, I suppose the most similar person, I would say, to him is Richard Yates, maybe. Oh, I've not. Oh, yes, Revolutionary Road, mm. yes. Um, but it, it is that ability to... He kind of writes in a way that seems very conventional, but actually it's it's very unconventional in its reliance on emotions and its ability to flit between people's perspectives and he doesn't do it to be clever he doesn't do it to be like oh right Mm. let's let's see a completely different perspective and twist what that other you know there aren't unreliable narrators it's just that seeing it's just that realization that everybody will see the same events from a slightly different perspective Mm, yes yes um yes i like that isn't it because it's not they're not unreliable they're just no more than anyone is unreliable because they are subjective yeah um, I think the writer reminds me most of is Elizabeth Taylor, um, although obviously on other sides of the Atlantic, but um, yeah. that yeah, same way. See that, yeah. Yeah, sort of building up a community and um, yeah, the, the same intense reality about the characters and the situations. Um, so I've only read those three. Which of the you've, have you read all but one? You said yes, I have. Um, and which are these your favourites of his, or are the others you put up there? Well, you know, I struggle with because I love them all so much. Um, I think Time or Darkness is quite different to the others. It's a lot darker. I mean, I don't say that because of the title, but because uh, <laughs> what, it, what it discusses is darker. Um, I think They Came Like Swallows is the most emotionally moving of the books. And mm. kind of, you know, I still haven't got over it. I've read it a couple of times and both times it's just a mess again. Um, and, but I think, um, for me, I really enjoyed the chateau, um, which is longer. I think the, the thoughts of the ending was slightly misjudged, but the rest of it was brilliant. It's this book about, um, this American couple going on holiday to France after the war. Um, and it's really interesting because I, I haven't really read anything about, um, I know there are books about it, but I haven't really read anything about the effect of the war on mainland Europe, um, mm. before. And also it's just like these Americans and their, um, you know, they've dreamed of going to Europe for so long and, and it's their kind of loss of innocence as they come and realize that Europe perhaps isn't, uh, this, you know, fantasy land that they had anticipated. And it's just, you know, it's again, it's like they're just on holiday and they just go to different places and nothing really much happens. But it's it's kind of wonderful at the same time. Um, but I think I think they came like swallows for its emotional intensity and its ability to recreate childhood in such a powerful way is probably, you know, I would say is, is his best. Oh, okay, so... So that was the first one I read, and I read it because um, Karen at Cornflower did um, one of her earliest Cornflower book group choices was They Came Like Swallows. Um, I'd never heard of him or it at that point, but um, went out and bought my copy. And yes, I think, again, I've only read those three, but it was it seems sort of the most accessible as well. Because I think that one I probably could read in more moods um, mm. <laughs> than Time Will Darken It. Um Certainly, the most sort of roller coastery emotionally, because I think the emotions are as strong in *Time Will Darken It*, but they tend to be the, the ones that are more protracted. They're more like, say, Austin's feelings about being in this marriage over many years, rather than, yeah, you know, the, the crisis of a flu, um, bringing out certain emotions. Yeah. 
Um, although my favourite book by him, which we have talked a few t- about a few times on here, is um, his letters with Sylvia Townsend Warner, um, The Element of Lavishness. That's yeah, I really want to read those. I still haven't come across them yet. Yes, yeah, so it's not that easy to to stumble across them. They're, yeah, it's quite a scarce book, sadly. But well, I mean, I think it's fairly easy to find online. It's just not in shops. But um, but yes, the way he, they write about mostly her writing because he's partly writing to her as a professional as well as a friend. He's editing her stories for the New Yorker. But the way he writes about writing is just so wonderful and so intelligent. Um, as well as the way he writes about his family, I loved reading how he writes about. Um, how he writes about Austin's relationship with his daughter, um, Ab, in the light of how he writes about his own daughters um, in those letters, because he's a, he seems like a lovely father and he really writes really movingly about them, and you can feel at that. I did, I'm sure that um, that Austin is a straight self-portrait, but but it's certainly got elements of him in Austin. Well, I think in every. I mean, I I would find it difficult for any writer to not put something of themselves in their characters. Yes, I think. Um, well, hmm, there's an interesting discussion for a future episode. But <laughs> it's um, certainly yes. I, I'm intrigued actually to know to, to what in Austin is or is not intended to be autobiographical. But, um, I've not read a biography of him or anything like that. So, no, I'm not sure if there is one actually. I think I've looked before and I couldn't find one, but. Ah, yes, I've got um, a collection of essays called something like In Praise of William Maxwell, but, uh, or something like that, but I've not read it. I'm not sure what it's about, but it's obviously not <laughs> a straight autobiography. <laughs> Fun fact, side note, William Maxwell, also the name of... Um, what's the woman who wrote Lady Audley's Secret? Oh, Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Her son is called William Maxwell. Oh. <laughs> and I read a book by him... Not sure at first which one it was, but it quickly becomes quite clear that it's not our William Maxwell. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was it called? Something Spinster. I'll find out and put it in the, in the notes. But um, it was a it was a sensation novel of of the most sensational variety. Oh right, sounds <laughs> And I don't think anyone could accuse William Maxwell of writing sensation novels. No. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. <laughs> the connections. The connections, indeed. Um. What else about William Maxwell? <laughs> what shall I read next? <laughs> well, I think the Chateau is is really really good, and it's it's quite a long. It's his longest book actually, so I mean it might take you a fair while <laughs> to get through. I actually did start it oh, did probably you? about five years ago, <laughs> um, and I read about a hundred pages, and I've I was certainly admiring it a lot, but it was like, as of time time will darken it. I wasn't feeling in the right mood for it. And I, I didn't deliberately abandon it. I just put it to one side for later, and somehow it didn't happen again. I would definitely need to start it again now because I remember almost nothing about it. Um, I think right. it's you know it's a summer like if you're in on holiday and you've got a couple of weeks where you're just chilling out and you've got no and you've got time to read, then I think that would be a great you know great book to take with you. Same with like Time Will Darken It. I read it in a couple of days and was like hit around the head with how. Um, like intense it was, it was amazing. I was like, I literally couldn't put it down. That's really interesting. Yeah, because I, I don't think it was being a page turner. But yeah, um, I, mean, I just wanted to know what was going to happen. I was so in these characters' heads, I didn't want to leave them. I was like, I'm just going to go make myself some food, and then I'm going to carry on. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't stop. And I think it's the same for me with all of his books. I feel kind of like I've been launched into them, and I can't stop. It's like I can't draw myself out of them at all. I certainly feel with Time Will Darken It that I I could imagine that world 
existing outside of what we're told about, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I think a lot of books, I don't think of what the characters are doing when they're not doing what they're doing on the page. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I That's all the plot that's in my head. I don't think oh, I wonder what it's like when they go to work or whatever. Whereas that one, it's it's so real that, um, yeah. Although I wasn't picturing particular... I've not written fan fiction. But... but <laughs> Although maybe I should, but um, but yes, I, I say it feels so real that um, it's hard to believe that it's just he's picking and choosing what they do. <laughs> in the same way I felt with Arnold Bennett. In fact, um, when we talked about the Old Wives' Tale last time, that it's just so thorough that it feels almost like it can't be fictional. <laughs> if you yeah. see what I mean. Um, in fact, in some ways, he reminds me of Arnold Bennett. Although, um, yes. Not not the same tone, but the same way of encapsulating an entire character's existence. Interesting. <laughs> did you finish the Arnold Bennett? I did. Um, Stop reading. Um, so I really loved the first half, and I would probably have cut the second half, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I said on Twitter, and then got sassed by the Arnold Bennett Society on Twitter. Oh, so oh. there you go. <laughs> Um, essentially, he follows the two different sisters, and each of them get about approx half the book each. And I, I probably wouldn't have bothered with the second one. <laughs> um, I mean, it was very interesting in its own right, and would make a great extra novel. I just feel like going over the same time period again from a different person. It's not she was in a different place; it wasn't the same events over again. But um, just felt that unnecessary. Yeah, I felt, yeah, I think it, it, it wasn't needed. But um, I, my, my book group did it, and they they did not share my opinion, so that is certainly not um, something that everyone would think. Yeah. Mm. Um, as we are coming to the important time where I have to go and watch Long Lost Family and eat Lebanese food, mm-hmm. <laughs> we may need to conclude our William Maxwell section. Yes. Um, and I, this is quite tricky because I love them both um, for quite different reasons, mm. but because I think. Because it's one I feel like I'd be able to pick up again whatever mood I was in, I am going to go with They Came Like Swallows. This is a tough one for me. Because, as you say, they're both excellent, but in very different ways. I think, yeah, in terms of the most powerful book, one of the most powerful books I've read, I think I'd have to go with They Came Like Swallows. Lovely. So there you go. Um, uh, Yeah, again, we'd love to hear from anyone who's a Maxwell fan, or if anyone has any questions about which other Maxwell books to read, you can now ask Rachel on Twitter. (gasps) You can! I mean, I'm still trying to work out how to use it, and I don't understand how to reply to people, but um, (laughs) or how to put people's names into the Twitter thing. It's very confusing. I need (laughs) to help me with it. um, An an at sign, and then that type in. Is that what you do? That's what you do. Right. At Sevilla, one that looks like an A in a circle. <laughs> okay, great, great. Thanks for that. Um, so, if you have sent me anything on Twitter and I haven't replied, it's not because I'm being rude. It's it's just because I genuinely don't understand what to do. I'm thirty and a luddite, but I will <laughs> gradually learn how to how to use it. I promise. And and tell the good people what your Twitter name is. Oh, it's just book snob, isn't it? Is it? Is that my name? No, it's um, <laughs> it's book underscore snob. Oh, book underscore snob. Right, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> you can also um, just go there directly from my blog. I think I, I put something on there that you can click on. You have, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. As well. um, and I, as always, will be at stuck underscore in a book if you want to ask me anything there. You know, we always love hearing from you, whatever means you want to get in touch. <laughs> We're so online. Oh my gosh, we couldn't be more online. <laughs> We're all over it. <laughs> um, great, cool. So the, there will be a bit of a break, probably 
um, three or four weeks for our next episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but we will be coming to you with Lolly Willows by Silver Tens and Warner and The Love Child by Edith Olivier. Woo! Yeah, can't wait. <laughs> thanks um, for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you.